From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 619, SQL Q&A from SQL Intersection, Fall 2018. Recorded Thursday, December 6th, 2018. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio. I'm here in front of an audience and a group of yahoos at the SQL Intersection Conference in Las Vegas. It's December 2018, and boy, there's a lot of experts today and a whole bunch of folks in the room, so I guess we're going to dive into it. I will defer to our hosts. I don't know who that is. Aaron's got the microphone. We'll defer to Aaron. Nope, Aaron's not going to do it. Paul, what am I supposed gonna, to do? What are we do? supposed to say? You're yeah. supposed to say you're supposed to Welcome! Say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, welcome, everybody. So um, basically, you can ask anything you want about SQL Server. Hit the button. And there's a list of potential topics on the screen. You can't see them if you're listening to the show. Everything to do with SQL Server and a whole bunch of stuff that we've talked about at the show. So if you have a question, stick your hand up and Richard gets his weekly exercise. This is it. This is when my Fitbit actually gets put to work. All right. So I guess this would be for Bob based on the uh, topic we just discussed about. SQL 2019 is going to be accessing lots of multiple different data sources. How are you going to do that? And please don't say linked server. Yeah, so when you looked at the diagram I showed earlier from a data virtualization perspective, we use this polybase external table concept. And behind the scenes, it uses actually ODBC connections. So it's a different concept than using linked servers. Uh, so we use this ODBC data source. So we have specific sources we support right now. And then we have a generic ODBC connector where we can maybe support even additional drivers for things like uh, SAP and so forth. I remember there was an ODBC driver for Excel once upon a time. Not that I'm that, saying it's a good idea. We actually still may do that. Richard, yeah. So. <laughs> okay. Interesting that you chose ODBC. It's like one of the you guys invented the thing. It's one of the original ways that we connected databases at all. Yep. And here it is in 2019. Being well, back again. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah. Back again. One of the things that allows us to do, by the way, Richard, is really nice. Is it works on Linux. Right. So ODBC drivers for Linux and allows us to make a platform decision where we can run these connectors both on a Linux container or even Windows environment. Yeah. So, I mean, we're making fun of an old technology, but the reality is it's widely supported. Absolutely. All right. Anybody else up? Um, I work in uh, the nursing healthcare field and uh, we have a lot of third party applications we don't develop and uh, we're moving to the cloud. So, as a DBA, how can I stay relevant? What's the, uh, like, do I move into BI or do I, like, on the cloud, like, just, Strengthen my performance skills because on a cloud now you're not it's not it's not your database not on the on your server so get some insight on that. So this is one of my own my personal hot buttons as a consultant. I do a lot of performance tuning, and when I do performance tuning today on a box that's in somebody's data center, and I make stuff go twice as fast, they don't get a refund. It's not like the box prints out money and sends it back. But once your employer goes to the cloud or anybody else's employers go to the cloud. I've had people come to me saying, we're spending one, two million dollars a month on hardware up in the cloud, up on SQL Server. Can you cut that? And I'm like, yeah, I can for 50% of the savings. I'm in. You know, what are you cut me half of it? And I'm absolutely in. 
performance tuning is way more valuable now than it ever was before. And as long as you're good at performance tuning, queries, indexes, all that kind of thing today, you're going to be completely fine up in the cloud as well. If you want to learn the cloud, you can. You don't have to there. The, the place where I'd get a little bit more nervous is the people who do database administration, just taking backups, check DB, rebuilding indexes. That job kind of has a little bit of a ticking time bomb on it because that's getting automated away. But the people who are building applications, maintaining applications, making them go faster, there's huge headroom in that. Still and still responsible for security for for managing how people access yeah. what access they have audit uh, audit rules like all of those roles still exist mm -hmm. just because the database is in the cloud that doesn't change like make a laundry list of the things that you do today and if it's backups check DB index rebuilds it's, that is less valuable but if you're doing things like security compliance auditing making sure that because especially in healthcare making sure that all the data that these third parties are putting in and out of the database is tracked accessing is tracked all all that is huge work up in the cloud too as well especially when you let all the strangers in the database like so many of my providers seem to be doing and leaking all my data everywhere there are no strangers only new friends in your situation you're talking about like applications like epic and i guess and all scripts those kind of healthcare type of applications are they going into their cloud yeah so for example we have like we're using peoplesoft so like if you, you can't really add or remove indexes or you, there's not much you can do with that, right? So actually breaks right. the warranty for Dynamics right. if that, you do anything. Uh, that's there. why I was asking that. So you, from a performance tuning perspective, the vin, that's the vendor side? Yeah. Yeah. In that case, I would also at, go with what you suggested before with business intelligence and kind of getting into that aspect of it. If that's something that you're going to have more control, just build reports and to start doing some analysis then that would be a good area to move into. All right. We had another question. Going back to the uh, last presentation about pods and how all of this stuff is in sort of one location, do you see moving towards an architecture where I just ask the pod, I want to do this Azure function or this analytical function, and it figures out which service I want to talk to, which thing I want to do? It's like right now, if I want to set up search, I've got a search URL and a Cosmos DB URL into this, into that. And it's, it just gets to be a bit much if you're trying to use a bunch of those features at once. Yeah, um, it's a great question. So imagine this Kubernetes world, this concept called pods being uh, a way where you could even deploy just applications. And applications then could be abstracted from where SQL is running anywhere in there. And then imagine a world where even maybe this Kubernetes infrastructure becomes a database as a platform itself, right? Where you just want a database. And if you've got the right interfaces and the right operators built like I talked about, then it really won't matter anymore. So absolutely, the things you're talking about, Kubernetes provides that, but there is some work to do to make Kubernetes do that. And the other thing we're struggling a little bit overall is that, for example, Azure Kubernetes service is a great service to run these Kubernetes uh, pods and things in the cloud. But on premise, the market's pretty open right now, actually. Red Hat has something called OpenShift that they promote, but Kubernetes is an open source project, right? It's not like there's like five dominant Kubernetes Distributor, uh, commercial distributions out there. So that's the other thing that we're seeing in the market is like, who is going to, in the on, more on-premise world, take over Kubernetes distributions from a, a major, you know, industry point of view? So that is one thing that we find interesting right now and what we're seeing. And we're not quite sure how that's going to play out. Hi there. All right. So I'm working with a system actually that has one database per customer. And we have these two queries that run all the time. Like, they run really fast, and they're meant to even scale out even faster. 
The issue is that um, because they're across multiple databases, it means I have to deal with the compilation issue every single time. Is there ever or going to be a way for me to actually just combine and make it so that that particular plan will work for all databases? I, I want to understand, you stated that these were compiling all the time. Yeah, because I mean they have to compile every single time for because right it's running in multiple databases. It's the same. It's query. running in multiple databases, the exact same query, and because it, it's in different databases, it has to compile each time. But it's the same query. It's the same query because we're talking like we, every single customer has the same database and it has the same. Sure. And roughly the execution plan is pretty much the same for every customer because. It's, but after initial compilation, they're not. The plan isn't staying in cache. Correct. Right, because it's per database. I mean, the plan doesn't. The plan's not server-wide. No, 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 I know, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out why the plan isn't... You're, you're <laughs> no, telling no, me that no. the plan catches isn't I think his big issue enough. is if you have, like, 50 databases, you have 50 plans. No, we're how, talking, like, 500 databases. Right. No, no I, yes. but that's what I meant. Yeah. Like, actually, it's more like 10,000. I have 10,000 so databases. So have, They're customer databases. So, really, your issue is plan cache bloat and the fact that you can't share the plans across databases. Correct. It's like I'd like to lock down right. the plan no. for every single... I'll let Pedro so, answer that one. So there, I'm going to recap answers from two different people up here. So one thing is, you first want to know if all the plans should really be the same, because not all clients are going to have the exact same size. Maybe you need, some need different memory grants, whatever. So you may actually want different plans in each database. But if you have, say, two classes, like a small class and a big class, you could go with plan guides in some of them. You could stick plan guides around, and that way you won't incur the overhead of compilation time. But then you just have to know that it's actually always going to be the right plan. And the instant that the T-SQL changes, you're screwed. You know, as, as developers keep shipping new versions of the code, you got to yeah. keep slapping out new plan guides. But for Brent, he's also going to have to do that for each of all the 500 databases after he's classed the databases to figure out what the plan guide should be per database. So, no, I think what you're really looking for is having centralized plans, one per statement that goes across databases. And I'm sorry to say, I... That's not going to exist anytime soon that I know of. How many how many databases do you have? They have different 10, data. They have different cardinality. Yeah, no, I mean, there's no way to do that. What about optimized for? No, no, they are spread across actually multiple servers at this point. We actually usually run about a thousand per instance. If I had to ask, what, what's what's the average number of databases you have per, per per instance, and what resources you have backing up that instance in terms of uh, cores, in terms of of memory, and all of that, on average. Because I find it really strange that you're saying that you need to compile a new plan every time. And, and I mean, the, the clock hands must be going like crazy, aging out every, every single cache if you're that constricted in terms of memory. And that shows in other aspects. So uh, th that's just the tip of the iceberg, it seems, it seems to me. Are you well, having CPU problems? So it, it's, so we're basically a human capital management software. So we deal with clock-ins. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. Like what happens basically when people clock in and clock out. Right. So you're dealing with like, like time and labor management. Right. But we actually have all of our customers on separate databases. So yeah, I get a different plan. Like am I dealing with like high CPU on each one? No, but every single time I'm taking a couple millisecond hit for every single database. Right? When really, it's almost the same amount of rows for every single database, for every single input. Parameter wouldn't even matter so much. It's, it's just how do I optimize it all the way across multiple Okay, but so, that is the million dollar question. It depends. I mean, it, it, and I hate to say that, but it, it, 
the cardinality, as everybody's been saying, could be very different across those different data sets. The number of rows overall, the distribution of those rows, it, it might end up being that the same index, especially if it's a covering index, would work across all those plans, but that's not what SQL Server would deem as a safe statement to parameterize and cache and reuse, and therefore, it, they would not be able to do that across databases, which is why I was saying I, I don't think this is something that they would ever even consider because it already implies different data, different cardinality, different statistics, different index names. So, I, I, and even if the index names and everything were exactly the same, they are all the they're same. in different databases. Well, and they have the different cardinality, and different the, statistics. The metadata from that database for that query plan. Right. So you can't have a query plan based on the data in this database being used for this database. That's just not how the optimizer is written. I guess what I'm trying to say is the cardinality estimates pretty much seem to be the same across all databases, just because. It's but a that's period. a special case. One that's thing. the problem, right? Is yeah. is you want something that's very special case? And you know what? I've had this discussion. Let me just make this one point. That I've had this discussion, and don't worry, don't get your timer, Brent. Oh, um, <laughs> what are we talking about? What no, are, no, no, no. We're just saying, let's start the clock. No, no, let's no. start the clock. No, I've had this discussion with a couple of folks on the the QP, and I, I said something like, well. There's this special case where when you have a heap, you should do this. And they looked at me and they're like, why are you using a heap? And, and the argument was the engineering effort for a special case that, to be honest, is something that we can't really guarantee. It's not going to happen very often. Would be so high and the, the value so low, they're not going to do that. I, I mean, I, if you really want that, if you, if you have that need and you're having serious CPU problems because there's so many databases and so much compilation... You could go to a single database, and you could say. go to a table. Well, no, it could even be a table with the different data sets with row-level security for the different clients. There you go. And you could yep. potentially have... Partition it by, by customer number or something. Don't start me on you partitioning. Partition you could. So... Just, how would the statistics work for that partition table? <laughs> so... so. Well, then you'd want to use filtered stats, and I'm not oh going to start on that the at rest all. Of the, rest but the, of the, the long story short, I mean, there is a workaround per se that would solve the CPU problems, but then it introduces other problems. So I, I think you're just stealing from, P from Peter to pay Paul, right? You, you move you move into the one database scenario, and now you have to deal with that and the maintenance and the management of larger tables, row-level security. So you have the security benefits right now, but you have the CPU cost. I would kill your problem with iron. Yeah. So throw the, more hardware at it. Screw, comment, basically. No, I'm I'll sorry. Make. That is the best <laughs> what choice. Saying. That was Paul Randall. That's fine. The, the other comment I'll make you is can say screwed. that from an engineering team standpoint, you know that these databases are all the same and their usage is the same and the data is approximately the same. We have no way of knowing that. So, and we can't guess. And if we did guess and guessed wrong, we'd screw some people. And one uh, feature I'd like to point out that is greatly neglected, but I've done a... a my team and I have done a huge amount of testing around this, is uh, data compression, okay? We have done a massive amount of testing around this, and it can do a lot to improve your scalability and capabilities. You can fit a lot more in the data cache. So you're probably aware that it's, you know, it's a PKZip algorithm that's running, um, well, that's not the exact algorithm, but as an example, it's compressing stuff all the time. It will give you an enormous amount more data cache and planned cache. Yeah, but it's going to put more pressure on a CPU, which CPU, sounds like it's already pressed. Hold on. So we've done an extensive amount of testing in very high-scale situations. Unless your OLTP workload is very high on updates, it is less than 1%. Okay? This is empirically verified testing uh, evidence. It usually runs between 0.6 and 0.8% extra CPU. 
unless you have a lot of updates. If you're doing a lot of updates, it's a whole different ballpark. It also has a high CPU hit when you first turn it on or when you do major operations that are, you know, you're doing a massive purge of records or adding a ton of records in. So that might give you some more opportunities. So Kevin, I have to say that that's for your situation because in the vast number of situations, it's way more than, sorry, way more than, than just 1%. So another option you have, and it may take some engineering effort and testing, is to use in-memory OLTP and then make your procedures, memory optimized stored procedures, and you won't have to worry about the recompile. Remember, remember, we're t this is all per database stuff that you guys are talking about. He has t a thousand databases. I He's not going to go and do this for every table in every database. <laughs> right. If it's just for one table, I mean, it's not really that big of a deal, right? Potentially. But it's in every database. I didn't say it was yeah. easy. <laughs> Basically, there is no good solve all your problems SQL Server answer for your, for your problem. We are sorry to say. I, I think that you could reevaluate it and look at it differently and possibly come up with a solution that wouldn't maybe impact your CPU so much. But again, I, you might just move the problem, not really solve the problem. I think it might be an architectural issue. So, so you can blame Bob. <laughs> uh, I, I'm thinking we're going to move on. It's a pretty good architect. Just a good question. Because it looks like it was getting close to arm wrestling, actually, back there. How do I, if I have, like, existing SQL Server in one domain, and it has always on on it, how do I actually migrate? When they do domain migration, how uh, do I move it to a new domain without breaking the cluster? As of Windows Server 2016, you can have a Windows failover cluster that spans domains. Prior to that, all nodes in a Windows failover cluster must be in the same domain. You can't even have trusted domains with trust to span it across. So the least disruptive way would be to put another node in the new domain, get everything up to Windows Server 2016, get the cluster running in 2016 mode, bring up the new node in the new domain, add a replica to your availability group, fail it over, and then make, do your migration into the new domain that way. That would be how I would recommend doing it with the minimum downtime. To new hardware? No. There's the existing one, the, the current one that is on window, is sitting on Windows Server 2016. I'm not doing any hardware change. It's only it's that whole set is moving to another domain. So migrating a Windows Server from one domain to another without having it leave the cluster is something that somebody in the cluster team is going to have to answer. And I will hook you up with the cluster GPM. And we're going to pause for this brief moment for a very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of the leading projects called Already focuses on getting volunteers into the right place at the right time using cloud and mobile technology. HTBox builds and operates this and other applications on behalf of a variety of disaster response organizations, and they need your help. Go to htbox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HTBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell and a group of troublemakers from the SQL Server space and a fine audience that is putting up with their trouble uh, at the SQL Q&A at SQL Intersection in Las Vegas. It's December of 2018. And uh, we have another question right here. So Azure SQL DB is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And uh, I think Bob just promised a little while ago that it, 
SQL is going to be able to do everything, including make sliced bread. Um, but uh, Cosmos DB is getting talked about a lot, and uh, you listen to the right people, and they talk about it being uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. Can anybody talk a little bit about, or does anybody here know, sort of maybe a little bit difference in the use cases or... Let me try my best. Try your best. So, go, Joe. Go, Joe. So, can I get some clarification on the question? So, um, you're saying, look, you can't all be making good bread here. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah, yeah. I mean, really, I mean, if you look at Cosmos DB, it looks like, why wouldn't I just use this for everything? Except, yeah. you know, now SQL Server can do everything. Um, yeah. I, I'm kind of looking for, why, why, is there any sort of guidance, any idea so, why okay. I would use which um, when? you've probably heard a few different program managers across the team and we are prone to hyperbole. And so uh, sometimes the way that we position things, it's always through our point of view. Um, another habit that we're not always good with is that we'll give you the ingredients to the cake, but we won't actually make the cake. Um, and so your feedback reflects that. And we know that our uh, overall discussion is not always cohesive. Um, there are some positioning statements that we're always working out and there are scenarios where there's overlap. Uh, certainly like talk about the graph scenario. Um, you could do graph in Cosmos DB. You can do graph in SQL Server now. Um, when should you do what? Well, if you talk to the Cosmos DB PM, I guarantee they have a different story than if you talk to me. Um, however, uh, if I am knowing that you have graph requirements and you're also a SQL Server user and you already have investments there and you don't want to leave that boundary, uh, I'm going to recommend that. Um, if you're already dealing with key value pairs, or other things, the kind of consistency models that Cosmos DB has, I, I can be comfortable recommending that. So in terms of positioning, um, we do have, if you, if you look around very closely, like sometimes you have to squint, you'll see uh, a cohesive strategy. So SQL DB, we tend to say, hey, um, modernizing your SQL Server environment, um, elastic, um, pools have been uh, very helpful for SaaS models. Um, SQL Server on-prem, that kind of speaks for itself. That's that's the the, the big force in the room. Um, Cosmos DB does actually cross a lot of different scenarios. Um, so there will be overlap, and we always look at the context. Um, I just met with some system integrators last week, and they had no SQL Server in their topology, and Cosmos DB was a better story there. Um, does that help? Okay, it's a, I'll it's a, throw another angle at it as a non-Microsoft employee and somebody who does some of the database stuff as well. You know, Cosmos DB has a drop-in solution for Mongo. So if I've got a client who's currently using Mongo, they're now looking at doing a distributed data store. Like they're trying to figure out how we're going to go wide. It's a connection string change and a new account. And suddenly your Mongo store is working against Cosmos DB. Like it's a document store. It's what it's strongest at. There's a bunch of other capabilities, but that's one of the targeted scenarios they had. And I don't think they emphasize it much because I don't think Microsoft generally wants to run on going, we're crushing Mongo. But boy, it's, if you've, when I've got customers who are using Mongo already and they're looking at what it's going to cost to do this, the fact that we can dial it into Cosmos in an afternoon and demonstrate how it works and then shut it off again if it doesn't work for us, it's pretty painless. If you're already a heavy SQL shop, are there scenarios under which you should be looking at Cosmos DB? For anything that SQL is capable of doing, I would recommend staying with SQL, especially if you've already got the investment there. Um, Cosmos is the global scale. You know, It'll scale out globally. They talk about consistency in a different way than relational database people are used to. And if you hear what they say, it sounds like they're promising something that they're actually not promising, but it's the language we're used to hearing. So if they say, well, we've got strong consistency, so you're safe doing multiple up updaters, 
they're not guaranteeing that you'll have the same level of consistency you would have in a SQL server. So for example, if you have an actor, two actors in different continents read the same data elements and increment it, one of those updates gets swallowed in Cosmos because they have no locking across the globe. Otherwise, they'd never scale. With their scenarios that Cosmos is designed for, that's okay. With a lot of scenarios that we deal with, that would not be okay. So and, that's and generally the mindset of an open a NoSQL docs guy is we never update anything. We only add new rows. So we never think about that problem. Like we don't qualify that problem very much. But it, and that's one of the traps is they're using the same words and they really do mean different things because they come from different cultures. Just to add on to what Kevin said, you know, don't forget relational databases ensure ACID compliance, right? Atomic, consistent, isolated, durable. The real thing. And if you're doing anything with money or scientific kind of systems where the, where the quality of the data counts, stick with relational every time. Uh, all the NoSQL platforms are built on an entirely different strategy called CAP theorem, consistency, availability, and partitionability. But again, they use consistency to mean something a little bit different. And so you're not guaranteed uh, the uh, the rollback and commit sort of uh, behaviors that we get with relational databases. And that is one of the key considerations. Right back here. Has there been any talk about allowing for multiple primaries and an AG uh, on-prem? No. <laughs> um, once you start getting into... Um, multi-master updating, you end up buying into distributed lock management across nodes of unknown latency, and it's a whole few PhDs worth of understanding of how to do this without tanking your performance. Um, Oracle has spent about 30 or 40 years now working on their distributed lock manager, and that's why Rack works the way it does. Um, we're not going to start now and catch up to them. Great answer. All right. I Still around for a couple more questions. Do you have one? Yeah. Um, so I noticed that the Olay DB provider for SQL Server has been undeprecated. And uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if, uh, or why rather, that it wasn't put back in the SQL native client. So the SQL native client is still deprecated, as I understand it. Yes. So, yes, um, it's not a pretty story. So let's just think that we're, we're resetting everything. Um, Snack 10 and Snack 11 are deprecated. Those were releases that were in tandem with a SQL Server release, that, hence the, the, the number version. Um, in, in the more three, two or three recent years, uh, we've kind of decoupled all the other drivers, um, namely ODBC and, and, and all the other family of drivers. We've decoupled from the product and they, re they released standalone. Um, OLEDB remained deprecated, although even, even inside the engine, we, we have dependencies on OLEDB, as, as you know, for example, linked server. Um, so we, we kind of took, we, we had this stance, as you probably read from a couple of blog posts I had on that. Uh, one was pointing to the original deprecation announcement that said, uh, we're full-fledged ODBC now, and even though we, we recognize OLEDB may be out there, here's a number of instructions you need to go follow to convert your application. Um, I'm just paraphrasing Connor here. It was a mistake. We recognize that and we're backtracking. So going forward, here's the thing. We have an undeprecated, uh, OLEDB. It follows its own release path as do the other drivers. Um, we have for the, for the undeprecation, we've done a, a number of work to make sure it, it works with the latest versions of Azure SQL DB and, and 
and SQL Server itself. And we are now actively adding uh, what, in, in terms of priority, what is feature parity with ODBC, for example, uh, support for Azure uh, AD and, and a number of other scenarios. Um, we will not deprecate this again, okay, as long as I... I am. <laughs> you heard and it from Pedro and I'm, Lopes. And I'm blaming Connor on what I'm saying here. We will not deprecate anything else again unless it's precluding advancements in the product. And honestly, I don't see that happening in, in OLEDB anytime soon. And no SQL For, client ever hurt you. SQL client is back there. <laughs> okay. Done. Um, but I also wanted to add that even, even inside the engine, we're doing the work that's required to move away from, uh, the dependencies we had on snack, uh, um, the, the, the snack OLEDB. So we're, we're moving full fledged and we are obviously, um, advising every customer to move to the new OLEDB because that, that's the way forward. All right, I think I've got a last question here. We get a closing. Um, we somehow ended up with a store procedures linked to SQL and entity queries on our database. And entity loves to bring the database to its needs. So what's the main thing that I can focus on on performance for entity query? Or how can I convince the developers to just use store procedures and forget about entity? You know, if you just turned off their rights. From, from a SQL Server perspective, I, I agree that there's, it's, it can bring the database to its knees, obviously. And, and, um, it's all sorts of random queries coming in that we have, that we have little control. And so, um, if, if you're assuming that you can't move away from using a code generator, by the way, Entity Framework is not the only code generator out there. We have other, other code generators that do the same sort of horrific thing. There are many uh, ways to bring SQL Server to its knees. Yeah. That's, it's possible. So I would say, um, that's probably in, even inside that, that, um, just in time generated code, that's probably a number of, of predefined, uh, query profiles you can identify and you can try to tune the database designed for those and the others are just outliers. Right. Um, convincing someone, like you said, to, oh, move to store procedures. Well, that would be, an ideal world, but if, if an entire application ecosystem is built on something on an architecture right now, it will be very difficult for you to fight that windmill. So I would, while, while trying to leverage and evangelize for the next wave of the application, try to start adding other more sensible uh, ways of, 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 of reaching out to data in SQL Server, you can try to index for your most uh, offending queries, if you will, because you probably will be able to identify a few. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to kind of say the same thing, which is there are a lot of options with stored procedures. So if you can take two or three of the most critical operations, maybe write a very optimized procedure, have them compare and contrast the generated code versus the SQL code to, to really show them what the impact is. And, and then there are tips and tricks even, because stored procedures aren't a whole bag of perfect either, right? There's issues there, but there's a lot. I don't know where I came up with a bag of perfect. What the hell is that? Anyway, but my point is there, there's a lot more flexibility and control there. I, I've actually got a blog post series starting with building high-performance procedures. I've got 11 hours of Pluralsight courses on session settings and recompilation. If you understand how caching of procedures works, 
and, and how to programmatically deal with certain types of problems, you can get amazing performance with procedures. But you're right, some developers have had parameter sensitivity problems, they've gotten burned, and they're like, stored procedures suck, I never want to talk SQL Server again, I'm going to generate it dynamically. And they just swing the pendulum back and forth, and they're like, go to the extreme. And I think the best environment is a hybrid one, where, you know, some of the things can be generated dynamically, I get it, they don't want to write, you know, billions of procedures, but that doesn't always perform well, as you know. So, so if there is something very common, Pedro, go ahead. No, I just wanted to add that. Um, Please, yeah. We've I, I've worked. I think it was last year with one of our partners. They're they're the the the, the leaders in the Magic Quadrant for mobile application development, um, and they do. Uh, so it's not in the framework. But it do rely heavily on code generation and, and the developer on their flat framework basically literally uh, drags a few uh, icons and objects and builds the code, the code behind it. Um, but we've worked with them through a number of performance issues and they've come to the realization and they've extended their framework to accept uh, what they call custom code, which is essentially creating sort procedures and functions. And the, the, they allow now the developers, because they're, they're still an ISV, to recognize those um, heavy hitters that are used recurrently and move them to, to managed code. But a as evidenced by Scalar user-defined functions, uh, developers win. Developers will choose what they want to choose. Um, so I would just say don't let a crisis go to waste. Um, the next time you have something brought to its knees, have the data ready um, to show the before and the after. That's usually the best way to convince. There's also a very healthy market for really good DBAs across the U.S. <laughs> uh, one, one other thing that no one else has mentioned that I, um, I spent a lot of years as an architect. And so sometimes we have a situation where the developers, you know, they have a hammer. They want to nail everything, even though it may not be a nail. And they also have this concept of don't repeat yourself, right? So they build these, you know, really big, complex things. So it... You know, go back and look at the business requirements here. Is this a situation where maybe what they're doing is generating a lot of reports rather than the, the CRUD forms? And in that case, maybe you can move architecturally to a different paradigm. You could maybe move to self-service BI with Power BI, right? You could set up an availability group where you have a read-only secondary, and then all of that read traffic gets moved over to a different server, and no longer is your server being brought to its knees. So we don't really know your full business case, but assuming that you have some flexibility there, sometimes you don't have to change the actual implementation. You can change the architecture and get a whole different set of results. Okay, I think that's all the time we have. A big hand for our panel. Thank you so much for coming out, and we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.